welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed, science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. Welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. Today, I have my good friend, Dr. Jessica Nurek, on the show to talk about pregnancy and postpartum nutrition, and this is a value-packed episode. Jessica is a researcher, speaker, and mom to a four-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter. She's a registered dietitian with a PhD in physical activity, nutrition, and wellness, which she got from Arizona State. That's where we met. We got our PhDs together, and she spent the last decade working on the wellness side of healthcare in the research lab, in clinical care, and with innovative medical tech startups. Through this experience, Jessica has come to realize that the prenatal and postpartum nutrition and health guidelines are often confusing, outdated, or sometimes non-existent. And she's become really passionate about helping women understand evidence-based prenatal and postnatal nutrition and health guidelines and educating women. And she's done a really good job of that through her social media channels. She's on TikTok. She's built a pretty big following over there. Her following's growing pretty quickly on Instagram as well. So I highly recommend checking her out on those channels. I'll put the links to those in the show notes. Also, during this discussion, we go into a little bit of detail about nutrients that are important for pregnancy. As you'll hear during the talk, I encourage Jessica to put together a guide, and she has done so. So she's put together a comprehensive guide of the important nutrients that are specific to pregnant women and how to get them and also how to find supplements to meet your needs of those particular nutrients if needed. So if you want to find that guide, you can go over to jessicanurick.com forward slash guide. That's jessicanurick.com, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-K-N-U-R-I-C-K.com forward slash guide, and you'll be able to download that information. We talk about it in the show, but it's a lot of information. It's better to have it in front of you. I highly recommend checking that out. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the show. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you. Hello. Happy to be here, Adrian. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. Jessica is going to share a lot of wisdom and knowledge with us. She's been in this space for quite some time. Her and I got our PhDs together, so we go back quite a bit of time. And uh, she's been working in this space. She has a lot of knowledge, and she also is a mother of two children. And so she's gone through this journey a few times as well and knows all of the challenges that come along uh, with this particular topic. So I'm looking forward to it. It's true. It changes. It changes your perspective of the science when you have to go through it yourself. <laughs> exactly. Like I, I know that when I get asked questions on this topic, I'm like, no matter how much research I could possibly do, I, I just can't be a good credible source on, <laughs> on this particular topic. Yeah. I mean, you could, it just, you could, you cannot give the data. You just can't give the personal lived experience. Right. Yeah, I, I, the data, the personal lived experience is is an important one, yeah. and that's what I like to do on the podcast. That's why I think that's what I think the podcast offers more so than you know social media is. You get to get a little bit more into that stuff of like, okay, decision making sometimes is a little more complicated than you know the data. Yeah, sometimes there's other things that we have to pay attention to, and we can get into a little more nuance on the show. So let's go ahead and jump into the episode. We got a lot that we want to talk about. And I want to go ahead and get started with uh, a question that came in quite a bit. And this is, what are the main important nutrients for pregnancy? And like, what are the main considerations when it comes to nutrition for someone when they've become pregnant? And I want to also, I want to mention, I want to preface this, um, we're starting this discussion with the pregnancy period. Uh, I got a lot of questions about 
conception, mm-hmm. and we're, we're not discussing that in this episode today. That's a, a whole different ballgame in terms of the things that need to be considered. So we're starting here with when you become pregnant. Now, what are the things in terms of nutrients that, that we want to pay attention to? And then also, what are the nutritional, like main nutritional things that we want to focus on? Yeah, and I, I, I think it's a great question. I, I want to start before we dive into like individual nutrients of concern for pregnancy. I think it's really important to drive home this idea that Pregnancy nutrition overall, when you think about it holistically, is very similar to what you and I might discuss as an overall optimal diet for really anyone. And so there are some f- a few different areas and obviously like some some areas of concern when you are pregnant. But, but when you get down to it, I mean, when you are consuming a really nutrient-dense diet, you're getting a lot of these nutrients from the foods that you're eating already. And so I don't want people to feel like it's this really overwhelming journey when we start talking about things like folate and choline and iodine and calcium. It can just feel very overwhelming. But at the end of the day, if you're focusing on nutrient quality, if you're focusing on nutrient density in the foods that you're eating, most of the time you're going to be meeting your needs through food with the exception of a few nutrients of need that we can discuss. And I think that's an important point to kind of start out with because it can get overwhelming when you just talk about individual, you know, vitamins and minerals. Definitely, definitely. I'm glad you you mentioned that because I I hear this a lot with pregnancy and then also with menopause as well. I hear it very often with that is people ask me, you know, what what nutritional changes do I need to make there? And I'm going to have someone on to discuss that topic in more depth a little bit later. But that's something that is most people like you don't need to just overhaul your entire lifestyle. Like it's if you were doing the right things before, Typically, you're, you're probably doing most of the right stuff still is, is I think, the, the point that you're trying to make, yeah. which is which is a good point. Like if you're doing, you know, you're paying attention to your diet, you're paying attention to your lifestyle and you probably are because you're listening to the show. You're already probably doing a lot of the right things. So yep. don't feel overwhelmed by the discussion that we are about to have in terms of individual nutrients, because like like Jessica said, it can get overwhelming. And we talked about a little bit about this on the last show because I talked about meeting your nutrient needs. And I discussed that like we don't really need to pay attention to individual nutrients if we eat overall healthy diet. But in some cases, there are nutrients that that are just of more importance during certain life phases. And in this case, that's what we'll be discussing in terms of the nutrients. Yeah, yeah. And so for pregnancy, I mean, there's some there's some major ones that obviously come right to mind, right? Folate or folic acid is a big one. It's probably the most well-known in pregnancy and, and preconception because it's really important for preventing neural tube defects like spina bifida, for example. And so you want to make sure that you're getting folate, your folate levels or your folate intake. B12, choline is is one that is relatively recently identified. Like I'm talking in the late 1990s, which I guess isn't that recent, but it's recent in the sense of like science, right? It's kind of a baby science, a baby nutrient, I like to call it. And so those those needs increase when you're pregnant. And then interestingly, also there's some nutrients that increase when you're breastfeeding. Things like iodine, iron, calcium, these are all really important nutrients for your growing baby. So what, what's happening, particularly in the first trimester, is your body is going through a lot, right? Through a pregnancy, it's building a human. So you literally are building a baby and you need the requirements to build that baby. And so that's going to include all of these vitamins and minerals and proteins in order to do that. In the first trimester, you're also building an entire new organ, the placenta. And so that's one of the reasons, you know, in, in the first trimester, you, you've feel exhausted a lot of the times because your body's just getting revved up, right? It grows an entire new organ in the first trimester, and then you're starting to build a whole new human. And so 
that's why a lot of these nutrients, they increase in need. So, you know, even even DHA increases magnesium. Calcium doesn't increase, but it's it's just a need during pregnancy. And then, you know, vitamin D and phosphorus. And a lot of these nutrients, they're they're housed within a prenatal vitamin. And so that's why we tend to recommend uh, getting a prenatal vitamin starting actually when you're trying to conceive so that you're already kind of meeting your nutrient needs and then kind of filling in with your diet. So so a prenatal, and we can talk more about that later on, but it's really an insurance policy to make sure that you're getting a lot of these things like, you know, like increased B12, like increased choline, iodine. I mean, you'll hear a lot of these nutrients that I'm discussing when you think about food sources of them some of the best food sources are going to be animal-based products. And it's it's interesting. It's one time and, you know, you know me, Adrian, I came from a, a vegan background, right? Like for, for like 10 years yep. of my life, I was practicing a vegan diet. And then I, I started eating eggs and I started incorporating some fish and, you know, just feeling better in that way. And so I still, to this day, eat a very plant-based diet and recommend a very plant-based diet for the most part. But, you know, animal products are really going to have a lot of these nutrients of need when you're trying to grow a human. You're trying to grow, you know, an animal, for, for lack of a better way to say it. And so, so the, the, you're getting a lot of those nutrients from, from animal products. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And, and I feel that's something that's not discussed enough when it comes to people who are promoting like vegetarian and vegan diets. They don't really emphasize how some of those nutrients, you know, it's just much more difficult to get some of these things through animal foods, especially those nutrients of need during during pregnancy and during early childhood. So you have to be really diligent about making sure that you're getting those nutrients in. So if someone is, oh, so let's say, for example, someone is following a vegan diet, is there any special considerations for that person? Like would, would they, because I know things like choline and yeah, DHA, yeah so- those are going to be difficult to get. Yeah, and it it's possible. It's certainly possible to have a healthy and we have, you know, we have people who have done it have a very healthy pregnancy on a vegetarian or vegan diet, but there are definitely nutrients of need and nutrients of concern that you're just not going to get very much of from the diet alone. So things like vitamin B12, things like DHA, choline, all of those are housed within animal products for the most part. Glycine, even vitamin K2, iron, zinc, and then I mean, protein, right? So protein can be a little bit more difficult on a plant-based diet. So you just really have to, you know, you have to be more conscious than you would be when you're not pregnant if if that is something that you are practicing. Because, you know, one piece of red meat is going to have the bulk of these nutrients of need for pregnancy, right? Or mm-hmm. or an egg. Eggs are the best source of choline, for example. I mean, during pregnancy, your choline needs are about 450 milligrams and then that increases to 550 milligrams when you're breastfeeding. And, and we, there's just not a ton of great nutritional sources of choline, unfortunately. Um, eggs are a great one. They're uh, around 150 milligrams per egg. But, mm-hmm. but if you're not eating eggs, if you're not, and, and meat is another one, you know, liver and other meats, organ meats are pretty good. And then even in chicken, there's some choline. But other than that, I mean, there's, there's not great sources outside of that for, for choline in particular. So, that's when that's when you can turn to supplementation to help you out. And that's what supplements are there for, right? To supplement the diet when you can't get it from your food. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so I, it sounds like it, it's, you're just going to have to be a lot more mindful of these specific nutrients and, and really have to support that nutri- those nutritional needs with supplements. So when it comes to supplements, you mentioned a prenatal. Is there is there anything that we should look for? Is there any particular brand you like? What, what, what would we be looking for in terms of a prenatal? multivitamin. 
Yeah. So when you're thinking about a prenatal, there are so many prenatals on the market. And so it can be really overwhelming. And it's like, what is the best one? And the best one, I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to depend on where your nutrients of need are. So most prenatals are going to come standard. They're going to have folic acid or folate, either whether that's folic acid or methylfolate. And they're going to have, you know, B12. In terms of choline, they may or may not have choline. Most prenatals don't. Some have a little bit. You know, it's becoming more well known that, that it's a nutrient of need in pregnancy. And so they'll add a little bit. Some of these nutrients, though, they're quite expensive, like choline, and they're large. So, you know, in order to get enough, you have to take a lot of pills throughout the day. So like, whether that's four or even six to, to you know, even get a, me- a measurable amount. So, so when you're looking at a prenatal, what you want to think about is, okay, what are the, what are the nutrients that I am in need of? Um, what I really, the number one thing to look at is a prenatal, and this is with all supplements, right? Because supplements, and you've probably talked about this, Adrian, supplements are very poorly regulated in the United States. Um, and so particularly in pregnancy, you want to be sure that um, the, the, new, the supplement has in it what you what it says it has in it. And there's there's many cases of third-party testing companies testing supplements and them not having what they say they have in it. And so you want to make sure your prenatal is third-party tested. So any company that does third-party testing, you know, NSF or USP are really good third third-party testers, but make sure that you look for that. It, it may say it on the label of the actual supplement, but you can always go to the website and they will disclose if they do third-party testing or not. And so I think that's like a number one kind of thing to look at. And then you just want to make sure that when you look at the nutrient composition, let's say it has a little bit of choline, let's say you're it, you're meeting your needs with B12, you know, it's getting, you know, 2.6 milligrams in, in there. You may or may not want a prenatal that has iron. So iron is a nutrient, and obviously one of the big things that does is prevent anemia, but it's it's quite important in pregnancy too. But the thing is is that some of these nutrients compete for absorption, right? So, you know, iron for example, can decrease the absorption of calcium and zinc. So sometimes prenatals won't include iron. And that's okay. If you're eating a diet that's, you know, full of iron-rich foods like red meats, like beans, like other forms of iron, then you may not need to supplement with iron. If you don't, if you get your iron levels tested and you are have adequate iron, you don't necessarily need a prenatal with iron. And so a lot of times too, let's say you do need iron. You may want to take iron, for example, outside of your prenatal vitamin. So it's not necessarily that you want every vitamin that like I talk about as a nutrient of need in a single prenatal. So you, you may be able to take an iron supplement away from your prenatal so that you're increasing absorption of that iron and it's not competing for you know, some of the nutrients that are within the prenatal itself. So overall, to, to kind of summarize, I, w- I would look for a prenatal that has been third-party tested that includes some of the nutrients of need that you may have if you are not going to supplement outside of that. So for example, the prenatal that I took personally had 50 milligrams of choline in it. That's not enough choline, but I knew that I was eating enough choline in my diet that I didn't need any additional choline. So I didn't go and seek out you know, a supplement that had 450 milligrams of choline. That was fine for me. And then also if your supplement has vitamin D, look for vitamin D3 just because it's better absorbed for pregnancy and vitamin D is a huge Hugely important nutrient during pregnancy that most of us are deficient in, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, with that, is there is there a good resource that you could point us to, or that you have that has a breakdown of these things? Of like, okay, this is vitamin D needs, this is folate needs, or do you, do you know of anywhere like that has this kind of broken down? 
you know, I have a video just because I've done reels on this. I have a video doing it, but I really need to put together a, a actual document just so people can see it, especially like with the nutrients of need. There is an OBGYN who has a great resource and I'm forgetting her name right now, but I can probably tell you and we can put it in the show notes if you want to, because her resource is yeah. pretty good in terms of looking at it, looking for a prenatal and not just recommending a single one, but looking, you know, giving you a guide so that you can choose one for yourself. Oh, yeah, I have, that... I have one other thing to say on prenatals, though. Sorry to cut you off. I think it's yeah, really important. There, there's a lot of companies popping up in the prenatal vitamin market that are incredible marketers. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that their vitamin is not is not good. I'm sure it's good, but it does mean that it's incredibly overpriced. So there are, so just just beware, just because you see an ad for something over and over and over doesn't necessarily mean it's better. It means that they can charge more most of the time. Yeah, they're spending money to to get in front of your face to charge you more. And yeah. and so what what would be like what would be a quality prenatal? What would someone expect to spend? Man, I I think probably around like thirty to forty five fifty dollars monthly is is probably okay. an average spend on a quality prenatal. Remember, you're gonna find cheaper ones, but to get some of these like more bioavailable forms of the nutrients, which can be really important. I mean, if you look at blood work pre and post, I've just seen this, you know, in practice. If you're you're gonna get better results from more bioavailable forms, generally, and so it's one time in your life to maybe prioritize getting a quality quality nutrient, quality vitamin. Yeah, definitely. And the reason I asked about the the resource because I wanted. I was hoping you had one, and and now that you said you didn't, I think that would be really good if you did make one because <laughs> that is the question that came up the most when really? I when I posted the Q and A into the to so I posted questions for this podcast into my Instagram stories and you know, the question about nutrients of need and then prenatal nutrients like so if you just outline these are the important nutrients these mm-hmm. are the amounts and then. It would help people in looking for a multivitamin to ensure that they were getting, you know, the right amounts of, of what they needed. Yeah, kind of a guide for choosing a prenatal vitamin. Yeah. What, what a great yeah. idea, Adrian! I should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're we're gonna be sharing the link to your guide in yeah, the show yeah. notes. <laughs> no, no. So let's go ahead and move on. So there's another topic that I want to discuss that that came up pretty frequently. Is are there any so, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of myths and misconceptions around foods that you should avoid during pregnancy. And a lot of people are confused about what you actually should avoid and, and what you shouldn't. So can you give us a breakdown of like the things that you absolutely should avoid during pregnancy and then the other foods that we really just want to pay attention to, like raw fish and things like that, where, you know, there's risk involved and we just need to be aware of that? Yeah, yeah. So this is obvious. This is like one of the biggest topics in pregnancy. And and it's one of the biggest like anxiety inducing topics too i think and the problem is is that we don't have great coordinated nutrition care when someone becomes pregnant right and so there's there's research to show that you know obgyns who are primarily the people taking care of pregnant people in 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 the united states at least but obgyns and midwives they don't feel like they're adequately educated in in nutrition to be advising on on nutrition right and and, and that makes sense they're not trained in nutrition like like a dietitian is, for example. And so what happens is they, you know, have handouts or worksheets that they will pass out. So you go, you know, you go to your first appointment and you'll get a handout that's like foods to avoid. And it's honestly kind of random. It's, 
and not not really updated. And it doesn't really explain why to avoid these. And so what I have had, and this is a true story, and it's happened more than once, I have had on the same exact topic, people DM me because they accidentally ate a sandwich and then they got scared that they were harming, that they harmed their baby. Because they, you know, when you're so used to eating like a turkey sandwich every day, you know, you just accidentally eat a turkey sandwich when you're pregnant. And then because you don't know why you're supposed to avoid turkey, you know, or or deli meat, you freak out and think that there's going to, you know, harm is going to come to your baby. And, and it's it's really unfortunate because we don't, it, it's a pretty straightforward thing to explain to people like the rationale behind this but it's not it's just not being done and and the other thing is there's no you you don't get an appointment you don't get to discuss things with a registered dietitian most of the time unless you get diagnosed with something like gestational diabetes or preeclampsia and so you're left with these like handouts so all that to say Foods to avoid, when you do get a handout that's foods to avoid, generally what the reason is, is because there has been, it's been linked to an increased risk of foodborne illness. So whether that be listeria risk or salmonella risk or toxoplasmosis gondii risk, those are really the three big ones. But there's, there's obviously many other bacteria and pathogens that can cause foodborne illness. But a big one that we discuss a lot is listeria because pregnant people are at an increased risk or pregnant women are at a 10 to 20 time increased risk of getting listeriosis from listeria. So I think that can be confusing to some people. So some foods can be contaminated with a bacteria called listeria or a pathogen called listeria. And that can lead to some people get, some people, you know, eat a food contaminated and they're absolutely fine. And then some people that can lead to listeriosis, which can be very dangerous for a developing fetus and, and mom. And so when, when we talk about foods to avoid, so when you hear like, you know, the traditional ones, deli meat and soft cheese and raw anything, that's what, that's what the idea is, is trying to prevent your risk of this. Now, in my opinion, my educated opinion, I think that it would be much more beneficial to teach people about food safety for all foods versus just giving them a random list of foods to avoid. Because at the end of the day, anything can be infected with listeria. Actually, up to up to 50% or 40-something percent of listeria cases come from raw produce. So whether that be, you know, vegetables or fruits. And so, you know, vegetables and fruits, particularly those sitting out, are really at a high risk of listeria, but nobody ever puts those on those do not eat lists. You never see like spinach on those do not eat lists. Mm-hmm. You see mostly animal products. And so I think teaching about food safety and talking about, you know, proper handling techniques and don't leave your food sitting out and, you know, refrigerate to thaw. Don't leave, you know, meat sitting out to thaw just when you're pregnant to, to reduce risk. All of these things, it's all a risk reduction strategy, right? And so, so that's what we're really, really going after. And so for me, you're not going to see this list of like specific foods to avoid because of listeria risk, because I really think that at the end of the day, it's very important to identify, okay, what are the food safety things that we can do to decrease risk in all food? And I think that's going to go a lot further than just cutting out total food groups, which can have, you know, detrimental effects. You can be cutting out, like, let's say you just don't eat fish because that's a common thing that people just give up. Fish is a great source of a lot of really important nutrients for pregnancy, including DHA, which is, you know, pretty hard to get from elsewhere in the diet. And so to just give up fish completely is not great. 
so that's really what we that's really what I try to work with people on is is understanding this idea of food safety. I do have a list of foods that I would avoid, and I can go over those if you want me to. Yeah, let's go over those quickly. I'm glad you prefaced that. Of course, we always want to have the nuanced discussions, and that's why I bring you on instead of someone else who's going to say, avoid all of these things and scare people. Yeah. So I'm glad you definitely brought that. But yeah, let's talk about the ones that truly do you know, pose an increased risk during this time. Yeah. So, so this is outside of foodborne illness risk, and it's not going to come as any surprise, but avoiding alcohol. And you would, you would be surprised at how controversial that can be <laughs> on, the, on the social media world. <laughs> But, you know, there's just absolutely no known safety effect of alcohol. I mean, it's a drug. And the the idea is everything's a risk-benefit analysis, right? So there are some pharmaceutical drugs that potentially would be probably better to avoid in pregnancy. But, you know, because the benefit to that person is is higher than they're still used. But when you're talking about alcohol, you know, maybe an occasional glass of wine every month is not going to be detrimental, but we just don't know, right? I, I don't know to tell you that. So I, I would, I have that on my do not consume list for pregnancy, you know, go, go the nine months without alcohol. Energy drinks is another one. This one's broad and it's, you know, potentially there's exceptions, but you know, when you're thinking of caffeine intake, the, the recommendation is to keep caffeine under 200 milligrams per day. And so most of these energy drinks, they're at that upper limit or even higher. And then, mm-hmm. but but more importantly, they're filled with a lot of stuff that have never been tested for safety in pregnancy. And so I tend to recommend, you know, things like your Red Bulls and your Monsters, avoiding those in pregnancy for the most part, particularly if you're a habitual drinker. And then high mm-hmm. mercury fish, which is kind of something we should always avoid, but in, in pregnancy for sure, because it's a neurotoxin. So, you know, high mercury fish like big eye tuna, shark, king mackerel, those types of fish that are going to, you know, give give a greater amount of mercury. And that's the way to find this is the FDA puts out like a great little resource on, you know, the highest mercury fish, the lowest mercury fish and medium mercury fish. The thing about fish is and mercury fish is, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm just like such a huge fan of fish intake during pregnancy because it has so many great nutrients. And one of those nutrients is selenium and selenium binds to mercury. And so a lot of the times, even though it might be like a medium mercury fish, that medium mercury fish has a lot of selenium in it that, that you, so you may not be being exposed to the amount of mercury that is actually in that fish, if that makes sense. So, mm-hmm. but avoiding the high mercury fish, consuming the low mercury fish, right? Like salmon is a great one. Another thing that I put on there is raw shellfish, raw shellfish, like mussels, oysters, clams, 85% of seafood illness comes from raw shellfish. So this one is kind of like a, a risk mitigation one, right? Like reduce your intake of the things that are the highest risk. And so if I'm looking at seafood intake, 85% of the foodborne illness or of seafood illness is coming from these, this particular group of fish, then I'll, re- you know, I'm going to reduce my risk by not consuming that. Now, could I get into the weeds and be like, okay, if you live in the Pacific Northwest and you're literally like pulling it out of the ocean that day and you're consuming it, is that better than if you live where I live in Denver, a landlocked state, right? And I'm trying to eat mussels or raw oysters. Probably, but we don't have that data to, to kind of weed that out, right? So just avoiding raw shellfish can reduce your risk. And then the last two that I always put on this list are undercooked meats, but particularly undercooked pork, lamb, venison, and ground beef. So 
make sh- making sure this is a food safety thing, right? Making sure that those cuts of meat are, you know, are heated to the appropriate temperature to kill pathogens, particularly Toxoplasmosis gondii, because Toxoplasmosis gondii is found in the highest percentage in those particular cuts of meat than any other cuts of meat. And so really making sure that you're cooking your meat appropriately when you're pregnant. And then the last one is soft cheese from unpasteurized sources. So unpasteurized soft cheese has, I think it's something like 50 to 160 times more. It's more likely to cause listeria or a higher listeria risk than from pasteurized sources. But the thing is, is that people tend to think that they need to avoid all soft cheese when they get pregnant in the United States. But in the U.S., we pasteurize almost all of our soft cheese. It's actually pretty hard to find unpasteurized soft cheese sources. So if you're buying it from the supermarket, it's almost always pasteurized. And so you can look at that on the label and, and you know, eat your brie if you would like to when you're pregnant. Yeah. Th- does it say raw if it's in the U.S.? Does not does it say raw if it's like unpasteurized? I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I, I actually think that to be sold in the market, it has to be pasteurized in the U.S. So I think like where you're getting unpasteurized cheese is from like you know, farmers markets or farms yeah. or those types of things. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. So, yeah. So these are the main ones. And then is there anything else that, that is like, is there circumstantial? Like in, in this case, you may want to avoid this or are these like the main ones that you uh, tend to talk about? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of circumstantial ones, right? Like if you're allergic to tuna, definitely avoid tuna. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's where like individualized advice comes in. But there's a couple of other ones that I wouldn't all out avoid, but you might want to limit in pregnancy for for various reasons. So that's things like caffeine particularly in the first trimester. So the the known safety limit of caffeine right now is 200 milligrams per day. And if you think about it, that's like, there's about 75 milligrams in a single espresso shot, right? So that's like, what, two and a half espresso shots, <laughs> keeping it under two and a half, 200 milligrams. When I was mm-hmm. pregnant personally, for both of my pregnancies, I didn't, I switched from drinking coffee to drinking espresso because I could monitor the amount of caffeine that I was getting a lot easier that way because coffee is kind of all over the board with how much caffeine it has in it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, keeping caffeine under 200 milligrams per day from all sources, so including like chocolate and tea and those types of things. And then also limiting, you know, and this is kind of standard nutrition advice, but particularly in pregnancy, particularly if you have blood sugar issues, refined carbohydrates and just like simple sugars and things like that. So, I mean, the whole goal is is eating as nutrient-dense as possible. Now, I say that, and if there are people in the first trimester listening to this, I want you to know, I have to do a sidebar, that the first trimester, and, and this is like one of those things, right, that this is one of those areas where when you have gone through something, you have so much more empathy for, for what people are going <laughs> yeah. through, because I can talk all day about... And and really, at the end of the day, what I'm talking about is optimal nutrition. Our bodies are pretty incredible and will go through a lot to be able to bring a healthy baby to term. And so we're not talking about just like getting by here. We are talking about optimal nutrition. But having said that, the first trimester is awful for many of us in terms of nausea, just like awful nausea that usually starts around like six weeks, peaks at like nine weeks. Most of us get relief by the second trimester. Some people, they don't get any relief the whole, their whole pregnancy. And then also like fatigue and just symptoms. Symptoms are so rough in the first trimester. And literally with my second pregnancy, there was, there was a point where I could not consume like animal products. I could not consume meat. I, li- I lived off of like cereal 
for, for a part of it. Now, in those cases, in those times, that's when we have supplementation that can be helpful to you in order to meet nutrient needs when you can't eat them from nutrient-dense foods. But optimally, we're, we're trying to eat nutrient-dense. And so, you know, when, when I say no refined carbohydrate, not no, but limiting refined carbohydrates, limiting sugars, that's because those tend to be devoid or lower in, you know, in nutrients, in vitamins, minerals. And so, you know, consuming ones that are more nutrient dense is more beneficial. But some of us at some stages of pregnancy need refined carbohydrates. And so they're there for you. And I I think you yeah. should consume them. <laughs> One of the most common struggles that people experience with nutrition is getting enough protein. Protein sources tend to be pricier than other foods, and it can be difficult to find quick and portable protein options. For this reason, many people can benefit from including a protein supplement in their diet, but there are so many different options on the market, it can get overwhelming when trying to choose one. I typically recommend getting a protein supplement that has been third-party tested and includes at least 20 grams of protein per 100, 120-ish calories. One of my favorite brands on the market is Legion. Legion is best in class when it comes to quality. They use pure whey isolate, which is least likely to contribute to digestive issues, and they don't include any sugars or artificial sweeteners, and the protein powders still taste good. And they have a variety of flavors. I personally go with the Dutch chocolate, and I have it plain in a shaker cup with a piece of fruit for an on-the-go snack, or I add it to yogurt for a high-protein chocolate pudding. I also add it to oatmeal and sometimes other foods as well. If you want to give their products a try, Legion is currently doing a buy one get one off sale of their entire site for the month of november so click on the link in the show notes if you're interested or just go over to legionathletics.com and use the code chavez at checkout to get 20 percent off your first order or double your rewards points if you're already a customer that's legionathletics.com or just go to the link in the show notes yeah and the and the other the other piece of, of this whole, you know, equation is that sometimes you, you're going to need the calories, and and if you're not yeah. um, able to eat other things, the calories are as important as the other nutrients that we're discussing. So under eating is also not recommended if you feel like, oh, I have to only eat these nutrient dense foods, and you're nauseous and you can't stomach those things. It, it's going to be beneficial for you to include some of these other foods that help you meet your energy needs and and not feel completely exhausted during that time. Totally. And there, you know, there's some, I work with people who are just like, they have the worst nausea and there's ways to still get in protein. You have to like be, you know, sneaky about it, I like to say. <laughs> so like, for example, protein powders can be really helpful. So you can make, make like a protein shake or just put it in a smoothie. There's things like Kodiak cakes, which are like these higher protein, but you're still getting a pancake, right? So you can, you feel like you could stomach a pancake. You can hide eggs in like baked goods. So you're still getting some of that protein. And, and, you know, sometimes you just have to do that when you're going through some of these horrible symptoms of pregnancy. Yeah, definitely. And along with that, you mentioned the refined carbohydrates and another topic that frequently comes up uh, during pregnancy is, is gestational diabetes. So what are, what are some things that, that, you know, we want to look for in terms of symptoms of gestational diabetes, testing for gestational diabetes, and, and then also like main factors for preventing or, or even helping to deal with it if it does, if you do, did become diagnosed? Yeah. So, okay. Gestational diabetes is something that we test for. We test all, all pregnant women for, for it between 24 and 28 weeks. Sometimes people go up to 30 weeks, but generally you're getting tested between 24 and 28 weeks during your pregnancy. Now, if you have risk factors, 
like two or more risk factors, they may, or you had gestational diabetes at a previous pregnancy, you may be asked to be tested early on in pregnancy. So in your first trimester versus waiting until 20, 24 weeks, and then they'll retest you after 24 weeks. And the reason they wait so long is because that's when insulin resistance becomes kind of peaks. And so we see a lot of cases of gestation. If you, if you tested before that, you would miss a lot of cases because most most kind of appear between that 24 to 28 week mark. Hmm. And what it is, is gestational diabetes is different than type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes because it it is markedly, it, it happens only in pregnancy, right? So, mm-hmm. and once the pregnancy ends, it goes away. And so that that's kind of what distinguishes it. So we do see people get diagnosed with diabetes in pregnancy who actually came into pregnancy with undiagnosed type 2 diabetes. And so that's mm-hmm. a little bit different, but the way that you kind of deal with it is similar. And so there are risk factors for gestational diabetes, but I want to be really clear that at this time, we don't it's not 100% preventable. We see people that are seemingly doing everything quote unquote right and still get diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And that's why it's really important for us all to get tested, even those of us, you know, like myself, who I follow a, you know, nutrient-dense diet. I exercise daily. I, you know, do everything. I don't smoke. So I don't, I don't have a history of, you know, diabetes in my family, but I could still get gestational diabetes. And we see, we see that occur with people. So that's why testing mm-hmm. for everybody is really important. And at the end of the day, what's happening is, your body becomes more insulin resistant as you progress in pregnancy. And, you know, there's a couple of reasons that generally in a normal healthy pregnancy, your pancreas compensates for this. And so it provides more insulin for you in order to compensate for the insulin resistance. And so you tend to have still normal blood sugar levels and sometimes even low blood sugar levels because of this overcompensation of insulin. But if you have gestational diabetes, what happens is this: there's an issue in this compensation. So your insulin resistance might be too high for for what your pancreas is able to produce. And so that's when we tend to see gestational diabetes happen. And so you see really high blood sugar levels in undiagnosed or uncontrolled gestational diabetics. And this is obviously scary. And the reason is because it can cause birth defects. It can cause, I mean, it can cause a number of issues for both mom and baby, including the way that gestational diabetes was actually found out is because it was in the 1800s and there was a woman who was complaining of she was very thirsty and she had cloudy urine. And so anyway, she went on to have her her baby and the baby was 12 pounds and it ended in a stillbirth. And so if you are uncontrolled gestational diabetic, what happens is your 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 glucose is so high and your glucose levels mirror the baby's glucose levels when the baby's in the womb. So what happens if the baby's glucose levels are really high is their little pancreas tries to overcompensate and produce a lot of insulin. And so they become hyperinsulinemic. And um, what high insulin levels can do is increase your, uh, your fat storage. And so a little baby who has too high of blood sugar and too high of insulin, um, that's where we get, see macrosomia or, or large babies being born, which can lead to a number of issues for the baby including including stillbirth. And so it's very, very, very important if, if you are diagnosed to keep it under control. And, and we tend to see really good outcomes with, with people who have controlled gestational diabetes. So like I mentioned, some, there's not a lot of, or there, there are, there, you can't 100% prevent it, but there are risk factors. And so you know, minimizing these risk factors can help to reduce your risk. So you can't, 
like I said, not 100% prevents it, but you can significantly reduce your risk. And that's what we've seen time and time again in the, in the data and the, in the literature. So some of those risk factors are pre-pregnancy, overweight, and obesity measured by BMI. So that carries a three-time higher risk. So it's by far and away the number one risk factor for gestational diabetes uh, is, is pre-pregnancy obesity. So, so let, let's stop on that really quickly, yeah. uh, just because I want to to just dig into that a little bit more, and I don't want to I don't want to harp on it too much. And I've talked about this topic quite a bit. You know, we're talking about BMI, so BMI being high. You know, BMI is just an indicator of excess body fat. Mm-hmm. But what you mentioned is like I guess the biggest risk factor for gestational diabetes, and and something that, as you mentioned, can have a negative impact on on a child. And it's funny that you mentioned that I was a ten pound baby. I'm pretty sure it was, I'm pretty sure my mom had gestational diabetes, but they didn't test it mm. at that point. But I was a big, really big child. But she she said that she just ate gained so much weight during during pregnancy, and uh, I'm pretty sure that was you know that that's why I was such a big kid mm-hmm. uh, coming out. Now that now as you were talking <laughs> about, it, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, that that's funny. But so well, it's not the, funny. The biggest but... thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, not not funny. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting because everyone, you know, joked about me being such a big baby. And it's like, oh, well, this probably wasn't for a good reason. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That was probably a, a negative, you know, a negative impact on my health as a, as a young baby. But so we, we talked about the, the preventing. And so the biggest risk factor is being overweight or obese or having excess body fat leading into pregnancy. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that because of that, it, the biggest thing that you can do to prevent that is like trying to you know, improve body composition, you know, leading up to pregnancy while you're trying to conceive? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, remember a lot of these, these are associated risk factors, right? And so, yeah. so that's all we can look at is what are these associated risk factors? And then we can try to understand the mechanisms behind each one of them. But at the end of the day, it is by and far the, the largest risk factor. And so whether that is and likely it's due to, you know, other factors that kind of correlate with, you know, a higher obesity rate. So so potentially it's not even about overweight and obesity and it could be about your lifestyle factors that going into and if you could just control those, you know, it could be helpful as well. We just don't have that data yet to know. But mm-hmm. yeah, obviously if the number one risk factor is you have a three time higher risk going into pregnancy obese, one of the things, one of the strategies would be to try to control those controllable factors, right? So uh, whether that be diet, exercise, whatever you can do, and it may not reduce your, maybe you still go into pregnancy obese, but maybe you're reducing the other risk factors that I can talk about. And and then that could be helpful for you in reducing your risk. Yeah. So what are those other, what are the other risk factors that you were mentioning? Yeah. And some of them are modifiable and some of them aren't. So advanced maternal age, for example, is one which I was for my second pregnancy. <laughs> well, my second birth, I was when I when I conceived the baby, I was not advanced maternal age. But yeah, you know, so you could argue that's modifiable because you could have children earlier, but it's not really modifiable. Yeah. A history of type 2 diabetes in your family. So family history of type 2 diabetes. Having PCOS. So this is a big topic. We could have a whole other podcast on this. But, mm-hmm. but people with PCOS, they're at risk because obviously mm-hmm. insulin resistance. Being mm-hmm. physically inactive cigarette smoking, and then just an unhealthy dietary intake profile. And so actually, it's very interesting because research suggests that you can reduce your risk up to 83% if you just if you go into pregnancy at what's considered a normal weight, you exercise around 30 minutes a day, you don't smoke and you consume what's considered a healthy dietary profile. So they see an 83% reduction in gestational diabetes cases. 
And and the other thing I'll say about gestational diabetes is we've seen a significant increase in cases over the last decade. Um, and so the the cause of gestational diabetes from what we know now is is from likely from placental hormones plus an increase in body fat, which are both very important for pregnancy. And so definitely like the hormones of your placenta are at play there, but that is not like genetics and just uh, placental hormones. It doesn't explain the huge increase that we've seen over the last decade or two decades. And so there, there's mm-hmm. got to be a mix probably like, like I said, not hundred percent preventable for everyone, but also there's got to be some controllable things in there that, that we, you know, and, and that's what the evidence kind of suggests right now. Yeah, definitely. Just keeping a healthy body overall and focusing on the things that we always talk about in this show and that I know you always talk about on your on your platforms as well, you know, exercise, paying attention to your nutrition. These are the things that help with our metabolism and it sounds to me like probably and and I'm pretty sure we don't have this data cuz we don't just have great data on insulin resistance in po- large populations, but it it's probably like insulin sensitivity leading into pregnancy would be like probably one of the biggest factors that drives a lot of that, I'm guessing, based yeah. on the way you just discussed that. Yeah, pre-diabetes going into pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, because mm-hmm. if PCOS is a very strong component, it's typically that's people who are insulin resistant that they don't, it's just not diagnosed at this point, or there's no good, you know, markers for insulin resistance that are generally tested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, Okay. Well, so the next thing I want to discuss is kind of along that same line of uh, thinking is postpartum weight loss. So I got a lot of questions about postpartum weight loss, like what's realistic, how to achieve it. So I want to discuss that topic because I know it's a really big one for a lot of women after they have their children. Yeah. So I'm always so sensitive talking about this topic because I I completely understand kind of like both sides here in terms of after we have our baby, and I can say this from personal experience, I had never experienced like large increases in weight and then, you know, large decreases in weight until I was pregnant with my first. And And your body completely changes. It's not just about weight either. Like, you can get back down to your normal or your, your your normal, I guess, for you, pre-pregnancy weight and your body still is totally different. <laughs> you know, you just completely grew a new human, birthed a new human. And there's there's so much. And, and I wish we had more time to kind of discuss postpartum recovery and nutrition for that, because there's so much that goes into postpartum recovery. And, and I understand, you know, wanting to wanting to go through this like weight loss period. Right. The, the good news for a lot of us is that nature kind of does that for ourselves. So you lose quite a bit of weight generally kind of right after giving birth. It's mostly water weight, obviously, and, and obviously the baby <laughs> and the placenta. So you're losing all of that. And so then it's kind of like, okay, well, then when I'm, get, when I'm ready to lose weight, because honestly, after, after working with women in this, in this field, I personally, and this is not really like database, like data backed that you shouldn't do this, but I generally recommend not even thinking about weight loss in the fourth trimester. And for those of you who don't know what the fourth trimester is, it's the three months, 12 weeks, essentially, after you give birth is called the fourth trimester. And it's really this period of time where mom and baby are kind of one still, and they're learning how to like live outside, like the baby's learning how to live outside of the mom. And so- Mm -hmm. It's a it's a very sensitive period and it's a period of recovery. And so my goal during that period of time is recovery for people. And so focusing on really nutrient rich foods, you know, 
moving your body, but not go like not going hard. Definitely not even yeah. exercising until you get cleared at six to eight weeks. And then after that, really working on like pelvic floor restoration and those types of things and then nutrient repletion. And then after those 12 weeks, if you want to start focusing on, you know, weight loss, then kind of putting your focus there. So I'm going to I'm going to speak specifically to breastfeeding moms, because I think that's where the a lot of the questions come up because of the of a potential impact on milk supply. And so mm-hmm. if you are a breastfeeding mom, generally you'll hear a lot of the times that breastfeeding helps you to lose weight. And for a lot of people, that is true because breastfeeding is an energy energetically demanding activity. And so research suggests that it increases your energy you know, expenditure by about 500 calories. But again, and Adrian, you probably talk about this. That's in the research. So for us as individuals, that may fluctuate, right? But, that, but that's what we know on average, about 500 calories daily is what's expended um, in breastfeeding. And so a lot of people tend to see success with weight loss just by breastfeeding. Now, there are many of us, and I know this because I've taken polls and I lived it, who do not lose weight when breastfeeding. It's actually much more difficult for us to lose weight, particularly body fat, when we're breastfeeding because we need to hold on to that. And I think you see that a lot with women who have low body fat going into pregnancy already. And then they just their bodies need that extra body fat when they're breastfeeding to, to create the breast milk. So when, you, when you're thinking about, okay, weight loss, Generally, we look at about 500 calories, and and what is known is that weight loss of about a pound a week, and and this has been pretty well studied, is is what's safe in order to continue to protect your milk supply. And so, if you're looking at protecting your milk supply, you know, losing about a pound a week is is kind of what's recommended. That doesn't sound like a lot, but think about that over you know 10 weeks, that's 10 pounds, and so you know, that's that's decreasing your caloric intake or increasing your energy expenditure, obviously. And then is there in terms of so I like how you mentioned at the beginning, like the first three months, honestly, I'm surprised you didn't say longer than that, because I really feel like after after having a baby like this isn't it, it seems like you like the focus should be more on just nourishing yourself mm-hmm. for <laughs> quite a bit of time. And then if the weight loss doesn't occur naturally by focusing on living a healthier lifestyle, then you can like kind of consider that down the road. Is this something you run into a lot? Because I got I, I got a lot of questions about it yeah. when, I, when I post. Well, that's what I was going to say. You say that you're surprised that I don't say longer than that. But I, I also live in the, the reality world, right, of the, okay. <laughs> living with these people every day. And, and so if I can get them to wait for 12 weeks to just focus on nourishing themselves, then we've won because a okay. lot of people, you know, after a few weeks, they're, they're thinking of, oh, my gosh, I want my pants to fit again, which that is a real thing, right? Like you have a whole wardrobe. Mm-hmm. You want, maybe you want to fit into your jeans again, whatever it is, whatever a person's reason is. Mm-hmm. I think I think if we're being safe, if we wait those 12 weeks, you focus on nourishing yourself. I mean, when you're thinking about weight loss you should still be focused on nourishing yourself, right? But then but, but then you can start think about thinking about weight loss. And then also at that 12 weeks, you you tend to do do tend to see plateaus in that initial weight loss that you have after having the baby. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of why that that time period works for for what's the word? um targeted weight loss attempts. Yeah. Yeah. So 12 weeks and then get into a mild calorie deficit, no more than 1 pound per week, so that that's going to be like a 500 calorie deficit. Yep. And so 
for those of you who are wondering like, okay, what is a calorie deficit? What do you, what does that mean? I recommend checking out my energy balance podcast. Cause I talk a lot more about all of that and it'll, it'll make a lot more sense to you. But that, that is, and, and as you mentioned, like that's 10 pounds over 10 weeks, that's 52 pounds over a year. Right. I always have to like stretch it out for people yeah. to help them understand. Cause working, I've worked with a lot of people in this field and, and you just, when someone says, Oh, I only lost, you know, four pounds this month or whatever. It's like, extend that out like we we have to stop looking at the short term and and everyone who listens to the show knows that I talk about this all the time is like we we have to really like take a long-term focus and that's where you know from a postpartum weight loss like I and I, I get it Jessica like the the wanting to fit back into the wardrobe and and all of that but I do feel like sometimes and I see this and I don't work with this particular population but I see it every everywhere else of people just trying to do everything too quickly and just kind of overwhelming themselves and and not really building something sustainable and it, it just takes a negative toll on mental health because you're expecting too much too quickly and, and and expecting things to bounce back immediately and and as you mentioned like your body's never going to be the same yeah and and that's uh, something that I think has to be you know has to be at the forefront because I hear a lot of people and yeah, I hear this with people saying like getting back to their high school weight, but I hear this all the time too. It's like, I, need, I want to get back to my pre-pregnancy weight. And and it's like, there. I don't know if it's a healthy thing to judge based on where you were prior to conception. No. Yeah. I mean, you're a completely new human after you have a baby and your body's a completely new body. And, and I, I think that, you know, talking about mental health, it it's... It's very difficult because you're going through so much in the postpartum period. A lot of us struggle with postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, which kind of leads into a lot of this too. And so, you know, just being gentle with yourself. And I know it's easier said than done, but it's so important. And and this comes up not just for weight loss, but also, you know, getting back to anything you're doing, especially exercise too. You know, I talk a lot mm -hmm. on my channel about slowly getting back into exercise. I mean, I am 11 months postpartum right now. And I'm just now starting to feel like, like starting to be able to lift the weights that I was lifting prior. And I, I've been lifting, you know, since about seven weeks postpartum. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of months. And, but I took it so slow and my body like thanked me for it. You know, I, I focused on pelvic floor in the beginning and then went up and it's, it's a little disheartening in the beginning when you can't, can lift half of what you were lifting prior to pregnancy. But your body will come back to you, you know, <laughs> you just have to, you really have to make sure that you're being really gentle with yourself in those, in those early months and even that whole first year and even, you know, all through life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But I feel like def definitely when we're talking about the year after giving birth, this is a time where, yeah, just has to be a lot more mindful in terms of recovery and paying attention and not overdoing it and not having unrealistic expectations around things that, that can lead you down the wrong direction and mentally. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Jessica. We, we've been talking for quite some time and we covered a lot of the topics that I wanted to cover. Definitely could continue discussing this topic for quite a bit more time, but I think it would be great for everyone to just go follow you on your social media channels and check out the content that you put out because I know you provide a lot of value and you go into a lot more depth on all of these particular topic. So can you let uh, the audience know where where they can find you and where you're putting out content? Yeah. So you can find me primarily on Instagram and TikTok at the same handle on both Dr. Jessica Norick, which you probably have no idea how to spell, but <laughs> I'm sure you'll put it here. 
And mostly I, you know, I do a lot of reels and, and videos on, on pregnancy and postpartum nutrition, but I'm also a mom. So I have a, you know, 11 month old girl and a four year old boy. And so there's some, there's some mom content sprinkled in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely make sure if go follow her. I, I know that if you found value in this episode, you're going to find value in all the content that she puts out. Like I, I learn something every time I watch your stories and things. I'm like, it, it it reminds me how clueless I am on this topic and how important it is for me to like refer out to experts when when necessary. So I'm glad I got you on to talk about it and, and to, to clear up some of these questions that came in. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I, I learn something every time I watch you too, Adrian. So <laughs> we're, we're equal. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. 